0: Well, this morning is a little different, and uh, today is a special day uh, in the life of the church. You know, in the old city of Geneva in Switzerland, there's a park adjacent to the University of Geneva, close to the church where John Calvin preached and taught. As you come into the park, there's a maze of trees surrounding the entrance, and then throughout the park, just hundreds of trees. Uh, The park is special because it contains a lasting memorial to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. It's a huge memorial. It's actually called the Reformation Wall, stretching 100 meters long, 328 feet, uh, more than a football field length. And on this memorial, the central feature is statues of John Calvin, John Knox, William Farrell, Theodore Beza, and, and others, in fact and chiseled into stone. And this large memorial spans the entire monument with Latin words, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. I had the privilege of visiting this memorial in the winter of 2014, flying from Sweden when we were there down to Switzerland. And trekking out of our hotel in the middle of winter, we explored Switzerland, Geneva. You know you have an incredible wife when she's willing even anxious to vacation in historical sites with you so that me as a nerd can enjoy church history. And, and we, we approached the, the park and I stood for a few moments just trying to take it all in, all the history that this just monument represents, rehearsing in my mind all that these men were allowed to do by the sovereignty of God. And as I stood there and, I, and as I took it in, a class of kids uh, came walking into the park, walking down towards this monument uh, for lunch. And, and they set up right be- in front of the monument to one side with their backs to the monument, 20 or so students. And as I stood there trying to absorb, take in a look, they didn't turn around once. Uh, in fact, never looked at the monument. To them, it was lunch. And if I had known French, of which I don't, I would have asked them, do you understand what this monument means? They they seemed very uninterested. I've read that for many Christians, church history began with the first Billy Graham crusade. They think that if we get our beliefs correct from the Bible, then we can ignore 2,000 years of history of God's people. And I disagree. How easy it is to forget what Heirs of rich church history we have and that begin with the New Testament and continue on to this present day. To study church history is to study the ways of God. It's a a way for us to appreciate, again, the providence of our God to his people. We forget that the better we understand yesterday, the better we will understand today. We need those Ebenezers in our life. Right. So this morning, the message is much different than the norm. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're, we're glad you're here, but it's, it's different. We're usually in a book of the Bible, walking through verse by verse, but this morning is different. This is Reformation Sunday. This is the Sunday closest to the holiday of Reformation. And we have a text this morning, a monumental text and a character this morning, Martin Luther. And as we begin this, I wanna pray and ask for God's help for me as a preacher and help for you as the listener. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what this day represents in the life of the church. And maybe that's new to, to some or to many here this morning. And maybe this will be an introduction, God, to them of, of looking back into the history of the church, the history of what you've done with your people, and for your people. And God, I ask that you would help them this morning. Help them to understand and to learn, even though we're not going to be in the same type of sermon as normal, God, I pray that you would teach them this morning. I pray that you would speak through me. You would use your word to guide and to lead your people this morning, and we'll be sure to give you all the glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna give you the outline as I go through. Uh, The first point, I wanna step into this to kinda bring you up to speed really quickly on why this day is important. So the first point is, how did we get here? How do we get here from October 31st, 1517? On Tuesday is 500 years from the day that Martin Luther came to the castle church there and the door and nailed his 95 theses. You know, there's a a form, one author said, there's a form of the church that can survive without the gospel, but there won't be any life in it. The church had developed from medieval times without much influence of the gospel. There's much in the history of the church that explains what was happening in in the 16th century, but one thing for sure was that the church was in desperate need of reforming. The gospel had been buried under centuries of traditions and superstitions, One writer put it, We had too many churches, too many relics, true or fake, too many untruthful miracles. Instead of worshiping the only living God, we worshiped dead bones. In the place of immortal Christ, we worshiped mortal bread. Many think, and I did for years, that the Reformation began on October 31st, 1517, but there were ripples of change happening long before Martin Luther stepped into the scene. John... Wycliffe, Wy- Wycliffe and John Huss were instrumental in stoking the flames of what would be the most revolutionary gospel preaching in the 1500s. Both Wycliffe and Huss would die for the proclamation of the word, and they saw this of great importance, and they would spend their lives to get the word into the hands of the people. The church then taught it was only the priests that could administer the sacraments, which was necessary for heaven. So in effect, the the priests of the day held the salvation of their parishioners in their hands. And to be cut off from the church was equivalent to be cut off from God. Wycliffe would be sentenced to death for his opposition to the church, all out of a desire to get the word into people's hands. But he would die before they had a satisfaction of killing him. Hus, who was from Czechoslovakia, his, his name actually meant goose. I'm pronouncing it wrong, I think, but Huss, while he was being executed by the priest, was watching uh, a priest was watching as he's being uh, to die, and, and he cries out at this time. He says, "You can cook this goose, but within a century a swan shall rise who shall prevail." He was close. 102 years passed between his death and when Martin Luther came onto the scene. So we fast forward through a lot of church history to 1513, and Luther began his formal lectures at a school, and he also pastored a local parish in Wittenberg. One of the benefits of living in this quaint town in this time uh, in Wittenberg, there was a new invention that was making its way through Germany. Anyone know what that invention was? The printing press. Luther would utilize this machine to produce his manuscripts for his lectures, for his students. And and as Luther was mining the depths of Scripture to understand what the Word of God said, the Pope in Rome was concerned about something else. Finances. Money. Pope Leo X was concerned for the monies coming in and, and the lacking political power that he didn't have anymore, that the church was lacking in Europe. He also so desperately wanted to remodel the, the basilica in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, which had fallen into great despair. And he's surrounded by these lush royal courts in Europe, and he wanted to elevate his beloved building to the same, but he lacked the funds. So as Luther pastored, he became increasingly concerned for the pe- people that he interacted with. Like Luther, the people in his parish had been in, instructed to strive for justification by means of an external system administered under the authority of the Holy Catholic Church. The external system focused on participating in the sacraments of the church, performing deeds that would gain them some some merit, trusting in the power of holy relics that would come to the church, and purchasing indulgences. Now we get to the center of what happened 500 years ago, indulgences. According to the teachings of the church, it allowed people to receive a reprieve from the punishment of their sins. See, according to the church at this time, if you sinned during your life, you would be punished after death by being held in purgatory to, to work off, to be cleansed, to be sanctified of your sins. Indulgences allowed you to shorten that or potentially eliminate your sentence in purgatory. They could also be used to shorten the sentences of loved ones. The updated Catechism of the Catholic Church from 1995 defines indulgence. Still, it says, a remission before God of the temporal punishment due sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or the temporary punishment due sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living or the dead. And if we think we've, we've gotten past this now in 2017, that's not true indulgences are still very much part of Catholic theology. In fact, just recently in 2013, it made public when Pope Francis visited Brazil for the World Youth Day. And the Vatican offered this this indulgence to people, complete indulgences actually, to those that even though they couldn't attend the event in Brazil, that if they would follow the event on social media, they could receive indulgences. You don't have to even give now. Just just follow. Devote yourself to them. Just click like on Facebook. Indulgences are still present, and they were rampant in Luther's day. So here's the setting. The mixture of Martin Luther. Him studying the scriptures. The church and their unholy pursuit to be like the world, trying to, to make money. And in this combination, the world was set afire. I wonder what it would have been like to be in Wittenberg the Sunday before October finishes, the last Sunday. Stephen Nichols, who writes a lot for Ligonier Ministries, kind of gives us a a story here to kind of put us into that spot. What what would have been like for Martin Luther and for everyone there? This is what Stephen Nichols writes. The chime rang out from the bell tower, time to gather for mass. Yet this was not a regular Sunday. Someone told us we would hear a homily. Usually we only hear homilies at Lent or Advent as well as the feast day of our church's namesake, but this is October. We weren't sure why we'd hear a homily in October. Then Jonas, the cloth merchant, explained last week's business took him to a new town across the ridge. All his customers were still reeling from what they had heard last Sunday. Their priest read a homily that could only be described as a tale of horror. He described dead relatives screaming out in pain in purgatory. He put his hand in his ear and bent down toward the ground as if he could hear their groans screaming. He depicted flames so real that everyone in the pews thought they felt the temperature rising as they listened. One customer told Jonas that woman had actually fainted. Afterward, no one dared to utter a single word. All shuffled out in silence. All this happened last Sunday, said Jonas. Then on Monday, a monk named Tetzel pulled into the same town in a grand wagon. Trumpets blew and banners unfurled. The archbishop's own guards surrounded him. In the shadow of the steeple in the middle of the town square, his attendants set up a table. And they piled a stack of parchment high on one side and cautiously placed a chest on the other. The chest had three locks. Everyone knows that if a chest has three locks, it is owned by three people who don't trust one another. Then Tetzel cried out, Friends of this town, you have heard how your loved ones suffer in purgatory. You have heard their cries. The flames have reached up and licked your very own boots. How shamefully, Tetzel continued, you go about your business. You spend your money on every little trifle. And then how how your loved ones suffer, enough, step forward. Leo X, the pontifice, Maximus, vicar of Christ on earth, has been gracious and merciful to you and has affixed his seal to this indulgence. Now come and do your duty. And now you have a very special deal reserved for you. For a little extra money, you can free yourself from purgatory. Yes, God be praised, give to the church your might and the gracious Holy Father in Rome will see to it that you and all your dead relatives will be in paradise itself, not enduring for a moment the purging flames of purgatory. And then he added the rhythm to his voice. And I'll read it in German. Sobal der Pefning in Kasten klinget, die Seele aus dem springet. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Ah, said Jonas, he had traveled to this town on Tuesday to sell his cloth, and yet not a single soul had a coin left. They had given all their money to Rome. So we knew what to expect of the homily in the cathedral in our town this last Sunday of October 1517. Vivid depictions of pain and agony, shrieks echoing through the cathedral, women fainting. And we knew that this Tetzel's carriage with its load of parchment papers and thrice-locked trunk would pull into town the next day. Sure enough, we listened. We watched others get caught in the sermon's grip. The whole affair was unseemly. I stopped listening. I hear that there is a, a monk in the town of Wittenberg, a brother Martin. It is said that he teaches and preaches differently than all these others. I wonder what he thinks of this homily. I wonder what he thinks of Tetzel. Luther had heard of it. He would desire to have a very specific discussion on this topic because he could see the impact on his people. And something you learn from Luther is he was angry, he was mad. He would rise from his teaching position in the seminary and walk the half mile to the castle church in Wittenberg. I had the privilege of walking this very path in 2009 with Madeline there holding my hand. Walking from the entrance of Martin Luther's home, the seminary, to the door of the castle church, we passed a little bread shop where you could buy a loaf of bread for one euro. Incredible bread. Then a chocolate shop of which they spoke no English. And I desperately wanted their chocolate, and a little cafe that had some of the best lattes I've ever had in my life. It's a vivid memory for me, walking down the cobble street, uneven to the door. You see, in that time in 1517, the door of the church was the bulletin board for theological discussions in a small town of Wittenberg. Martin Luther was angry at the practice of the church And he sat and he penned his 95 Theses, 95 points of discussion with the church. Luther had no intention of breaking from the church. Remember, to leave the church was to leave the faith. He had no intentions of even sparking a huge debate outside of the church. He wrote the 95 Theses in Latin. The language of the church, it was to be read only by scholars. Many Germans would pass by it. They wouldn't think anything of it. They didn't speak or read Latin. So those 95 points meant nothing. And so if you were to go into this town in December of 1517, no one would have known anything about this. They would have been completely ignorant of what had happened. He wanted the debate to happen locally, not realizing that it would spark a much longer discussion. And he attacked the practice of indulgences. He said it said, he said it was better to build living temples for the Germans than for them to invest their money in a new basilica that didn't, didn't benefit them in any way, shape, or form. But money, money wasn't the issue that made him most angry. It was the misleading notion that sins could be forgiven through the purchase of indulgences. The preamble of the 95 95- thesis reads, out of love and zeal for truth and desire to bring it to light the following thesis will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther. He wasn't seeking a fight. He wanted a discussion. He wanted to talk about scriptures to discuss the merits of what they proposed as necessary. And again I find it interesting that this thesis was written in Latin. But soon after a student, a scholar, finds it, reads it is affected by it, grabs it, and translates it into German. And I'd said earlier, what was in the town of Wittenberg? What was spreading out through Germany? What was that little invention? The printing press. And you know what they did with that document? The student, without the approval of Martin Luther, I, I'm assuming as a student, printed it and sent it out. March of 1518, this heads out to the people. Gutenberg was the one who invented the printing press, another committed follower of Christ, so instrumental, developing the printing press in man's Germany 100 years earlier. So if you are sitting here this morning and you work in any type of media whatsoever, you are indebted to John, John Johann Gutenberg because his printing press revolutionized the world. I, and another trip to Germany, had the privilege of visiting the Gutenberg Museum Seeing the press. I have a copy of John 1 in my office. You want to see the press of the, the print of John 1. So they utilized Gutenberg's invention. Luther's supporters wanted to get this out because they agreed what was going on here. The document spreads through Germany and makes its way all the way down to Rome. And the Pope gets a copy. I find it humorous to hear his response. He reads the letter, the thesis, and responds, Luther is a drunken German. He will feel different when he's sober. He never sobered up. <laughs> God would use this German monk in mighty ways. Before all the, that would happen, God would change this man. He would save him. And he saved him through his word. So second, my question to you is, are you perfect? You know, this question plagued Martin Luther. He would have years of schooling the scriptures with a master's degree, teaching in a seminary, and yet he was tormented with this question, how perfect do you have to be to get into heaven? He'd come to Romans 1. Open your Bibles to Romans 1. When you come to Romans chapter 1, you come to one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And as you come into this chapter, you you read a word that repeats itself a lot through the first 17 verses. And the word is gospel. In fact, it shows up here more than any place in the book. And you have to ask yourself, what is so important about this word, gospel? Gospel. Well, these two verses impacted Martin Luther. Romans 1, 16 and 17. 17 more than, than any other. But let's read. Paul writing to the Romans says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word gospel is a Greek word from evangelon. It's E-U, the good part, and angelo, which means to proclaim. In other parts of the New Testament, it's the word of the title of angel. And we think of angels, usually we, we think of those decorations that we put up at Christmas. But angel was a herald. The heart of the gospel is good news. How did people get good news at the time when when this scripture was written? There was no print paper, no audio, no video, no Facebook, no no Twitter, no CNN. They received their news by heralds. People shared the news. They proclaimed the news. If there was a battle or there was a victory in battle, there would come a herald. That would come to proclaim the news. And if he came to declare a victory, how would the people respond? Well, they would respond with joy and excitement. It was good news. They had won. And so, friends, at the very heart of the word gospel, it's not just news. It's good news. The Christian message isn't just any news story. It's good news. It's the best news that we've ever heard. It's not an infomercial about how, what you can do to be saved. It's good and glorious news of what's already happened so you can be saved. It's not good advice. It's not a 12-step program of health and well-being. You see, other religions don't have good news. They have advice on how to be good or how to achieve something. They don't proclaim what has been done for them. They inform on what you can do for yourself. And so we need to understand how drastically different this gospel is to any other religion in this world. And Luther had given his life to study the word of God. He had been lecturing the seminary in Wittenberg through the book of Romans and he had heard and understood this gospel. It was, it was this news, but he struggled to understand that it was good news. And he had been meditating on verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. A righteousness that comes through faith. He kept pouring over this verse, trying to reconcile it with himself. It's important things to understand about the righteousness of God if we understand this verse. James Montgomery Boyce has listed some of in his commentary, and so I want to share them with you. The first one he lists is this: this righteousness is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says that this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the very righteousness of Christ that God gives us. and righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Paul tells us so. the gospel concerns Jesus Christ. So it is Christ who has this righteousness, and it is from him that we receive it. And Jesus has it in himself and, and who He is as God. He is righteous. He is God and he's utterly holy and without any sin. And he says time and again in the gospels that that he is God and that he couldn't go against the Father. They are one. They're in perfect harmony. So he's naturally righteous, but he also achieved righteousness by obedience to the law of God while he was on earth. And Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about Christ. He says, he rendered a perfect obedience to the law He kept it in every jot and tittle. He failed in no respect. He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself, and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him, so he has honored the law completely, positively and negatively, actively and passively, There is nothing further the law can demand. He has satisfied it all. And so when Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he means that the gospel shows how we can get the righteousness we so desperately need. And in the gospel, we see we need, and we see what Christ has done. The second thing, God offers the righteousness of Jesus Christ freely without any work on our behalf. You see, this is what wrecked Martin Luther. This truth that he would understand was the match that would light the fire that burned through Europe. And Martin originally would read this verse and be troubled greatly. He says of himself that he was an unblemished monk. He stood before a holy goddess, a sinner, troubled in conscience and soul, The righteousness of God struck fear into his heart because he knew that it was because of God's unbendable righteousness that sinners were cast away from his presence. He knew that God demanded this righteousness from his creatures, but he knew that he didn't have it. In fact, the more he tried to achieve his righteousness, the more elusive it became. And the question would plague him, how perfect do you have to be to get to heaven? His conscience constantly reminded him that he was failing to get to this perfection. And he was tormented in his soul. You know, the sacraments were a solace to him. Whatever shortcomings he might have, uh, uh, he could do these things, one, by he, he'd get merit by deeds and all of the, the sacrifice and service to the Lord. He could visit relics and paint a gift and so on and so on, but Luther knew it didn't add up. He would go to his confessor, Johann Stoppitz, who patiently listened to Luther, sometimes even up to six hours in one confession. And Luther would search his soul, ransacking his, his memory to make sure no sin was left unconfessed. Stoppitz was so exasperated with Luther during one of his endless confessions, that on one occasion he said to him, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something more to forgive, homicide or blasphemy or adultery, instead of all this peccadilloes. Luther knew it wasn't a matter of whether his sins were, were small or big, but whether they were confessed. And he also knew himself, and he would be plagued by this thought, could I, could I remember Can I remember all of my sins? What if I forgot one? And here was the impasse. Sins need to be forgiven under their teaching. To be forgiven, they must be confessed. To be confessed, they must be recognized and be remembered. If they're not recognized and remembered, they cannot be confessed. And if they're not confessed, they cannot be forgiven. And around and around, Luther would go. Tormented. He was a tortured man. Living in endless guilt, and even more, Luther realized that his whole nature was corrupt. You know, we might say in the Catholic Church, confession is like mopping up the floor while the faucet is still running. It never ends. And Luther was a troubled man in his conscience. Luther wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean the justice is whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would relieve me. Therefore, I did not love this just and angry God, but rather I hated him, and I murmured against him. And he would pour over this verse, Romans 1.17. He taught of the righteousness of God, That was the pursuit, but he also knew that he would never get there. He would see himself as forever running after. How can I get this righteousness? God's righteousness wasn't revealed so that every human like Luther would strive after it and then fail desperately. The righteousness we need before a holy God is not a righteousness we can attain. In fact, it isn't a human righteousness at all. And this is a lie from the pit of hell that has been put in the heart of every living human. The righteousness that we need is divine righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness to us. And Luther came one evening to understand that it was revealed as God's free gift in Christ so that those who came to know Christ might stop their pointless striving, striving striving after this, but instead rest in Christ. Rest in him. Luther would write, yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. And then I grasped, That the justice of God is that righteousness by which grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. That is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is neither anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. And Luther would come to realize for the first time in his life that we're saved by sheer grace and mercy thanks to the perfect gift of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel we learn that sinners, you and me, can be declared to have the righteousness of God attributed to our account. The term for the application of righteousness of Christ to the sinner is imputation. It's like putting the infinite moral uh, moral capital of the Lord Jesus Christ into our empty bank account. It's having the riches of heaven at our disposal. And how do we receive this? How do we get this? It's not striving, like Martin did. It's received through faith. The righteousness that comes to me comes because I receive it through faith. We're justified by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? Whenever we talk about being justified, we're we're talking about not a change in the object, but a change in the relationship to the object. It's not a change inside the object, but a relationship to the object. For example, if you are speaking to me and you say something and I say, hmm, I, I don't know, justify that statement, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not saying that you should change the statement, but what I'm actually saying is that it's hard for me to accept that. Do something. Say something to change my relationship to that statement, to change my regard for it so I can accept it. I'm not saying change the statement, but more like help me to get into a new relationship with that statement because I'm about to reject it. Justify the statement means to change my regard for that statement. DO SOMETHING. It's ACTUALLY WHAT THE WORD MEANS, ESPECIALLY AT CERTAIN POINTS HERE IN ROMANS 5 WHERE PAUL SAYS IN VERSE 1 AND 2 IN ROMANS 5, THEREFORE SINCE WE HAVE BEEN JUSTIFIED BY FAITH, WE HAVE PEACE WITH GOD THROUGH OUR LORD JESUS CHRIST, THROUGH HIM WE HAVE ALSO OBTAINED ACCESS BY FAITH INTO THIS GRACE IN WHICH WE STAND AND WE REJOICE IN HOPE OF THE GLORY OF GOD. The word stand there means that we are able to stand in the presence of Almighty God, the King and Judge. So Paul is saying that Christ has done something. He has justified us so that we can now stand before a holy God. He has done something to change God's regard for us, our relationship to Him. Well, the third thing that faith is faith is the channel through sinners receive Christ's righteousness. Long before the Reformation would begin, Paul wrote to the Romans to explicitly teach the role of faith in salvation. Sola fide, faith alone. The Reformation are built on the five solas. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola grata, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And the last one, come on, say it louder. Thank you. Sola Dea Gloria. Glory to God alone. The Reformation was the issue of authority. Sola Scriptura. And the material cause was the issue of justification here. Sola Fide. They were not invented by the Reformers. Just so you know. It was written by God in His Word. They became, they became the proclaimers of these doctrines. Because the church had lost it. They had forgotten it. They had buried it. And so Martin Luther comes in the scene and he comes to the conclusion that central issue is sola fide. He said, the article with and by which the church stands, without it, it falls. He also said, the article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. And without this article, the world is in utter death and darkness. Faith. What is faith? You know, initially, Luther thought that faith was a work, and so he he grimly regarded it as something that he could attain. But faith is not a work. It's believing God. It is opening a hand to receive the righteousness of Christ that God offers. I've talked about faith before, but it's good to walk through this again. Faith consists first of knowledge. It isn't just an attitude, but it's a content in our mind We must have faith in something and in the case of salvation the object of our knowledge is the revelation of what god has done for us in christ jesus faith also consists of a heart response to the knowledge of the gospel faith is is not an agreement to some principles that is true but has no relationship to us no faith involves the love of god for us and saving us through the death of jesus christ And unless this this understanding reaches our hearts and moves us and changes us, we don't understand the gospel. Faith also consists of a commitment, commitment to Christ. Jesus isn't a savior in some abstract way. He's our savior. He's my savior. He's mine. And I know this deep down in my bones. He's my Savior. He's your Savior. Because I believe in what the Word says. And I believe in His faithful promises of His Word. Charles Spurgeon, you know, I can't get away from a sermon without mentioning Charles Spurgeon writing about faith in his book, All of Grace. He says, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It's not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which are sure. It's not an unpractical thing, dreamy things, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith, faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. It is faith in the completed work of Christ and his free gift of Christ's righteousness to believing men and women. Sola Fide is important not only because the church stands or falls on it, it's important because you stand or fall on it. And the place where we will stand or fall is at the judgment seat of God. The doctrine of justification is not there for smart theological nerds who love church history. It's there for you, my friends. It has to do with your standing before a holy God. You will stand before God one day and you will either be justified by faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, or you will stand unjustified by the failing personal work of yourself. Later in Romans chapter 3, Paul emphasizes this. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is a dilemma. There will be a judgment, it will be a righteous judgment. As fallen creatures, we're not righteous in ourselves. It's a, a threatening warning, he says. No human being will be justified in his sight. But that's not the end of the sentence. That's not the end of the story. If it was, there there would be no justification. There would be no gospel, no good news, only bad news. And he says, there is no human being will be justified by the works of the law. He's saying, there is no way that you can earn your way to be justified before God. You can't do it. Nothing you can do. Well, he doesn't pack it up and leave at that point. No, he doesn't leave us there wondering what can we do now. He ends in verse 20 with this dire situation, but it begins in verse 21 with a but. A continuance to where the answer lies. Romans three twenty one. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We are made righteous through the payment of Christ's blood, the propitiation, the atonement. Propitiation is the turning aside of the wrath of God against our sin. And with Christ's payment for our sin, he can redeem us from the slave market of sin. And redemption has to be the, this idea of a purchasing a sinner out of, out of the slavery of sin. And we don't return to that. Romans 1, 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We are justified, made right with God through Christ. Justification, as we've seen, is a legal term showing the the act of a judge declaring a defendant to be in right standing before the law. But here the judge is God, and we're the defendant. And we need to be declared right before God's holy law. But we're not right. We are violators of his law. So how can we be made right? It only happens through Jesus' substitutionary death and propitiation, payment for our sins. And through that, we are justified. And friends, when you're justified, you receive peace and security. No more worry, no more fear. And maybe you don't have any peace. You're struggling to believe you're saved. Friends, might it be because you're trying to add to the work of Christ? You're trying to add in your good behavior, your obedience to the law. You won't gain peace that way, friends. It's only been accomplished through Christ. We only have peace and security for salvation through what Christ did for us. So stop trusting in yourself, friends. Trust in Christ, and you will be overwhelmed with peace. You will have assurance. And listen, as I studied and read again this week, of, of what it was like in the 1500s, assurance of salvation was something sorely lacking during the years of Reformation. You know, the, the Reformers, those coming after, would refer to the damnable doubt of doctrine. I said that, I read that wrong. The damnable doctrine of doubt. <laughs> Got ahead of myself. The doctrine of doubt that was, that was put there and encouraged by the Catholic Church. That was their phrase to speak so strongly against this false doctrine. And the Roman Catholic Church taught and currently teaches by their catechism the same today. They say it's wrong thinking for any individual to be confident that they will go to heaven when they die. They say you don't know if you're going to commit a mortal sin taught in their doctrine. And so you have that and other sins that you have to work off in purgatory. The only people that the Catholic Church could say for sure that they're in heaven are the ones that the church says so. They're the ones that have been canonized. The saints. Everyone else is up for grabs. So if you understand this and you then go to your Catholic friend this week, it's going to rock their world. If you have a Catholic friend and you tell them that you're saved... And that you know that you're going to heaven what they're gonna hear is a prideful statement they would think it's arrogance I've been told this before I've sat across the Catholic on a plane years ago and heard that statement he said to me you think you're perfect I said I'm justified in Christ he's perfect And to him it was offensive. He understood the need to be perfect and he would never know. But that's not what we mean at all as evangelical Christians. When we say that, as Bible-believing Christians, we mean that we're saved not because of us, but because of Christ, through the cross of Christ. And in that we're showing humility, that it's not me. It's what Christ has done for us, but that's not what they hear. And so in the 1500s, assurance of salvation was completely foreign to people. I mean, can you imagine the preaching from Martin Luther and other reformers coming in? It's so precious to think about this. Friends, we pass over this and we don't think about it. You teach about uh, and preach about justification by faith alone. They they would be able to preach then to people that you can have assurance. They could say to them, when you go to sleep tonight, you will know that you're going to heaven. And how much of us do do we pass over that? You know, there wasn't anyone in Europe in the 1500s that had assurance. They were never taught that. They didn't believe that. They can you imagine the fear that would strike a person every day, not knowing what will happen when they die? What would you tell your kids when you put them to bed? You have no hope, and so you can imagine then how this completely rocked people. I can know. I can know for sure that I'm saved and that I'll spend eternity with Christ. It would completely rock their world. They would want to gravitate to this because they have no hope anywhere else. You can see why the Reformation completely rocked the Catholic Church in Europe. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? You know, Martin Luther leaves for us a legacy, but one thing for certain, he was not a perfect man. No reformer was. And so we, at least me, I enjoy reading a lot of the reformers and what they've done, but friends, I can't emulate them. I don't live to to try to copy their life no, Christ is my captain. I look to follow him, and that's what you should do too, friends. This Tuesday is October 31st, 2017. 500 years since Martin Luther ignited the Protestant Reformation. A half millennium has passed. And we're still here. God is all fit to keep us here. That means we have work to do, friends. Friends. And when, I want you to recognize when Luther nailed his theses to the door in Wittenberg, it was a protest. He was protesting the wrong thinking of the church, he was protesting the wrong teaching, the beliefs of the church. And with his convictions and with the word of God, the Protestant Reformation was born. And we are Protestant, which comes from the word we protest. We go against the false teaching. So the responsibility is in the hands of you, the people, us, the church. It's not just the pastors and elders. It's in our hands. We need to continue to push back the darkness in our culture. To protest the corrupt teaching and beliefs that engage our world. And if you're a Christian here this morning, friends, you're still protesting. You're protesting Bad, wrong, doctrine. You're protesting the evils in our world. You proclaim the gospel. And for us to do that, we need to be faithful. We need to have a high view of the scriptures. Not only in our church, but in all churches. This is sorely lacking in many churches that fill up here in the Northwest. Many of you have visited us in the last few months, and I hear this time and again from visitors. I've attended three or four churches in your area and they don't preach the word. It's because they don't have a high view of scripture. And friends, I'll give you the whole playbook here. Our goal in the church is so that you would learn to love the word of God and then go the right way. Go, go and spread the word, preach the word. We're all about sending missionaries and people the right way. We want you to leave the church the right way, okay? Not leave because you're mad. We want you to leave the right way. Where We're not here to build a bigger and better church. We don't want to add a second level. We're good. We want to grow people in their faith and send them out to go and share this. And we want people to go into churches and, and, and have a high view of the word. And preachers need to understand this. That it's scripture alone that we stand on and we proclaim every week. Husbands and wives and children and families that were represented here. Scripture is your standard for life and faith. You live in accordance to what the word says and you preach it. We also need to have a high view of God. We need to have a high view of our Lord and his holiness and his transcendence His sovereignty. A reformation needs to happen in our country. In our world. And a reformation will come when God's people regain a lofty vision of God as our sovereign ruler. When we view God as supreme and not man. When we worship, we worship God alone, not ourselves. And last, we need to squash the false teaching that, was, that is prevalent as Luther did. And the, the false teaching today is works righteousness versus Christ's righteousness still very prevalent in our world today. We preach the gospel, friends. I I believe it's a critical hour for the church. What will we do? Maybe you don't know this. I want to remind you what the reformers taught us. Remind ourselves what the word teaches us. We stand together in the gospel. We stand on scripture alone, not on man's wisdom. We stand by faith alone, nothing we earn. We stand through grace alone, nothing we accomplish. We stand in Christ alone, there's no other mediator. And we stand for God's glory alone, not our praise. We are Protestant, we are Christians. And I pray that we can go forth with this glorious gospel to the world who desperately needs to hear it. I'm going to ask the the worship team to come. We're going to lead in one last song. And we've sung this a few times. The song is entitled, Facing a Task Unfinished. And friends, we we leave this place with a task still yet to happen. And that's the proclamation of the gospel. And so I pray that we will be faithful in that as a church. And we would go and take this glorious gospel to the community in which we live. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can remember your glorious providence to your people throughout the years. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful with this task of preaching the gospel. That as we leave this place, may we glorify you in our lives. May we be unashamed of the gospel that we hold, the hope that we have, and may we faithfully give it out to all that we come in contact with. And as Colossians 1 says, God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.